Hey, this is Randy Gage, and you're listening to the Power Prosperity Podcast. Hey, Prosperity Nation, Randy Gage here, and we got another special guest star show. Uh, for those of you guys who haven't seen those shows yet, sometimes, as opposed to me just talking to myself about prosperity, I jump on with one of my friends who I think has interesting story, interesting information, stuff that you need to know about. And today is one of those episodes. So I'm here with Manny Diat. And um, so welcome to the show, Manny, first of all. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me, Randy. Love it. Yeah. So I think you cannot start a conversation with you on the topic of prosperity if we don't begin at what was going on with your life when you were seven years old. So can oh. you share a little about that? Sure, I'm happy to. So when I was seven, I was diagnosed with cancer. I was given six months to live. And, um, you know, after 51 surgeries, three and a half years in and out of hospitals, uh, 18 months radiation, two years of chemotherapy. I mean, you, you name it, I've, I've had it. Um, I beat some of the toughest odds. So, you know, through the grace of God, um, I beat this battle and um, it was, and I still have complications, even though I won the battle of cancer. I think most cancer survivors deal with when you've had 51 surgeries to your body and so much trauma, you deal with medical kind of issues. And so we always have you to stay on top of it and make sure we're eating right and doing those things and um, that are necessary to keep us going and keep us moving. And um, so that was kind of the story right there in the beginning. Wow. Uh, yeah, it was a, it was a long journey uphill. And um, but, you know, my little body didn't want to stop fighting and I don't fight. I don't stop today. We just keep going, you know, and it's kind of like Bruce Lee. I think it was Bruce Lee. If you get knocked down seven times, you get up eight. So that's, you know, you got to have that mental toughness. Yeah. So the, because I think on your website, somewhere I read you had 48 operations is the, and now it's up to 51. When, yeah. When's the last time you needed to have an operation? So I had it two years ago. Um, they, I had a tumor just random in the back of my head, right through my ear, almost attached to the brain. And they just found it because I'm having like an eye issue. I'm like, man, I'm not able to see in this eye. Yeah. And next thing they say is, um, I think you need to go see the doctor for something different than the eye. And I'm like, what? So I went in and they did an MRI of my brain and found this massive tumor. So they went and got it out. Um, but they had to cut my hearing on my left side. So my whole life I've had hearing till two years ago when I lost hearing on the, my left side. So that was the most recent. And I typically, um, now I haven't had one in two years, which is the first time in my life because I typically have at least one surgery a year. And this, so you, is, the this is the first time in, since you were seven that you went two years between a surgery? Yes, yes. If, if I can get to January and I will, it'll be two years. So it's kind of yes. like, it's silly, but it's fun to, you know, it's silly fun. I have to make it. Yeah. So you guys listening and watching, can you see why I said, I want to get this guy on to meet you guys? 
so take me back to seven years old. I mean, I can't even, I can't even remember what I was doing at seven, but I, you know, I never was in a hospital until I was in, until I was shot in my like thirties or something. I never had to do well, that's, I mean, as a baby, I was I almost died uh, when I was like six months old or something, but I didn't remember that. Right. So seven years old, right, right. Um, you had dozens of surgeries from seven to nine, right? What, what is, oh, yeah. how does a seven year old kid, how does, how does he or she get through that? It's almost like you don't have a choice. Like it's, it's, like you don't really have a choice. At seven years old, everyone's telling you what to do, right? Your parents are in control of you. The doctor's in control of you. All they're saying is, I'm sorry to tell you, Manny, but we have to go operate on your leg one more time. Or I'm sorry to tell you, you need to have another round of radiation. Or I'm sorry to tell you, you gotta go get an IV pole put in you, IV put in you, and we gotta put in some more medicine. You just, you just do. It's just that you're not really given much of a choice. You know, you start thinking about those decisions when you're an adult. Like if you get in the, if you're 30 and you get cancer, now you can say, hmm, I can go herbal, I can go natural, I can go with chemo, I can go now. I have a, I have options. But when mm -hmm. you're seven, there's only one option, which is to listen and to and to do what they tell you to do. So I developed, I guess, mental toughness early because I had to mentally prepare myself to go in for surgery. Even at a young age, I knew I had to get my body ready. I had to have the right mindset in place. I didn't want to be a victim. I didn't, you know, I've had three hip replacements. And I remember the first time I had my hip replaced, the doctor says, well, we stay in the hospital on the average of 21 days for a hip replacement. This is 15 years ago, 21 days. And I was out in like seven. And they're like, no way, because you know, the doctor would say, the nurse is going to come get you. She's going to stand you up and you're going to go from your bed to that door. I'm like, oh, no, sir. If I stand up, I'm going to go down the hallway and back and back to bed. I, I have no plan. I've been here 20, 21 days. So <laughs> I think that developed early being young and just saying, man, it's I got to get through this and not really having an option other than to succeed. But how's the the at one point they you were going to get your leg amputated yes and they didn't have to they were able to save it right yep. mm -hmm. uh, how old were you and what 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 was going through your mind at that moment yeah so that was um that was a very tough season and um i wasn't sure we were gonna even talk about this because you know i i love not being um scripted right um, it was the first time in my life, actually, I didn't want it to exist. It was very difficult for me that year because you have to understand that when I was in elementary school, um, I mean, yes, bald is beautiful, right, Randy? But when I'm in elementary school and seven years old and I'm losing my hair, it, it wasn't so great because I looked so different than everyone else. Yeah. Then you have my sister, who's a year and a half younger than me, carrying my books all through elementary because I was all bone no muscle and that's super embarrassing then you get to elementary school and my leg is now getting twice as big as my other leg so I have you've got two legs and then suddenly my leg is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and they're gonna it's gonna either kill me from infection because I'm getting infections 
And now I'm looking super different than everybody else. I'm getting bullied like no one else. I go to high school and then the doctor says, hey, Michael Jackson's doctor in Beverly Hills is so interested in your case that you're such a fighter and survivor. He thinks he might be able to save your leg. And my dad was um, in the Air Force. So the Air Force said, we'll fly you there if he, so him can, he can take a look. But I didn't know if I really wanted to do that because I had already been through so much pain that I, I was wanting to check out. But I decided to, all right, let's go and talk to this doctor and see if I can make my leg look somewhat normal or if amputation is the answer. And, um, and sure enough, they were able to do a procedure that's in medical journals today to save my leg. So even though I still have complications in the leg, because um, it's still a site, you know, pretty bigger than the other, um, it's still, I get to walk and, and, you know, and do a lot of things that I didn't think was going to be possible. Or like, I know you had chat on, you know, before, and, you know, um, I, I could have been in the same shoes in a wheelchair the rest of my life. And, and thank God I didn't. Yeah. How do you think, who has it worse? I shouldn't even ask this question, but I have no, to ask, ask this question. Who has it worse? The seven-year-old with a terminal, maybe, disease, or the parents who are trying to take care of the seven-year-old with the maybe terminal disease? Yeah, so that's a great question because I used to, you know, as a speaker, I would get on stage and share over, about overcoming adversity. And I'm like, yeah, I spent three and a half years in a hospital. And then, bam, one day it hit me. It said, wait, my mom spent three and a half years in the hospital, too. There wasn't a day that she was not there with me. And um, and then you think about a parent watching their, like, you know, here at the Ferry Kid and working with kids with cancer. I see the parents take care of these kids and the torment that they go through when their kids scheduled for surgery or scheduled for another round of chemo or has to go in for another scan and they just don't know what's going to happen or come up on it. So, um, yeah, I think um, both are very scary. Who has it worse? I don't know. I'm not a big comparison person, but I would, I think they have their own degree of pain, you know, with a cancer person, terminal may have a degree of pain of eight, nine or 10, 10 being the worst. The parents may have the same eight, nine, 10 on the flip side of not knowing what's going to happen. Yeah. I just, because last night I watched the season finale of the show Transplant which is a new show out this year of a refugee from Syria who's a doctor there, becomes a doctor here in a hospital, in, or actually in Canada. It's in Toronto, I think it's set. And uh, there's a uh, pediatrician or pediatric surgeon in the show. And so the plot line in the season finale, there is a kid with cystic fibrosis who is going to die. and. Right he has to tell the kid and the parents, no, he, I'm afraid you're gonna die. And, you know, and brilliant acting by the kid and the, the couple playing the parents. And I just, and I thought of you, cause I knew we had this conversation coming up today and I'm thinking, oh my God, as parents, the, like even, I think even pet owners who are listening to this would say the same thing. If you have a dog or a cat and, it's sick and it's hurting and there you can't help them and they can't talk and they can't 
explain to you what they have. I mean, you feel so helpless right? for parents. I mean, it, it just has to be. Well, so let's suppose there's parents listening uh, now who are dealing with kids in sick or kids with terminal diseases. What advice would you give them to, to get through it, handle it, live through it better? Yeah, so great question. Um, a couple things I would advise them is, is to continue to have courage um, and let courage show up in your life because if, especially when you're dealing with kids, they're, they're looking to you as a parent, typically as the role model, as the advisor. They're looking, okay, mom, what are we going to do about it? You know, and, and so you've got to kind of stay courageous in front of them. And that transfers to them on how they're going to respond or react to the information they're going to receive. You're going to have to have another operation or another round of chemo or whatever. So for one, um, be courageous. The second is, is to be informed. I think now, today, more than ever. Now, understand when I say be informed, you're not a doctor, right? Because we can go, we can, oh, my neck hurts. I go to Google and I'm thinking I've got cancer. I'm going to die in one day if I look at all the things that they say, right? So being get informed and get educated so you can make the best decisions available. But um, at the end of the day, um, you have to have mental toughness and, and you've got to stay positive and you have to stay focused on what you want the outcome to be. Because if not, we can play worst case scenario and what if all day. And that really um, impacts the energy and the negativity, ne negativity that goes into your body. Um, and it affects everything. It affects every cell, every fiber of your being. So it's super important to have mental toughness, ask the right questions, don't assume things, and um, get as educated as possible. You know, talk to other parents, people who are going through similar experiences. So you can get information from someone who's been down that road, not necessarily someone who just is speaking about it. And as the seven and eight and nine-year-old kid who was facing all that, what did you feel? What did you try to do to help your mother and your father, right? I mean, do you did you ever feel like, oh my God, I'm causing so much problems for them and they have to give everything up for me and how can I, they seem so worried all the time. I mean, how do you, how do you deal with that as a kid? Yeah, so it, it's kind of good and bad. So the good part was sometimes you do put a smile on your face so you don't let people in on your pain. And um, so sometimes, even though I was feeling crappy on the inside and um, I was smiling on the outside, you know, I think Babyface did a song. It's like, um, you, like a clown, you put on a show, you know, you're, you, you have this beautiful face on the outside, but you're dying in the inside. Um, and then sometimes, um, so there was guilt involved with that. Not so much as when I was younger, but more into my teens, because then I understood the time my dad had to take off work or my mother had to take care of me. And I understood the financial impact of cancer on the family and, you know, and all these other barriers. So even though, yes, I was covered because my dad was in, in the, the service. So I didn't have this medical bill at the end of the month or end of the year. Um, there was still strain on them to do other things for me to have a normal childhood. So there was some guilt involved. Um, so, and then 
I'm not good at asking. Wait, wait, wait. We can't jump over that. Okay. How did you deal with that? Here you are. You're seven, eight, nine years old. You've got a potentially terminal disease. And you feel guilty because of what that disease is doing for your parents, your family. And you... So how, how do you get over, how do you, how do you handle that? How did you get over that guilt? I think by, um, yeah, you know, God, now that I'm thinking about it, I grew up so fast at seven. Like when you think of a seven, eight, nine-year-old, I was not your normal seven, eight, nine, because I was always around adults and not in school. And, and I learned so fast. Um, I think through time, as I'm thinking about this through time, uh, I allowed my mom to love me and my parents to be parents and thought that if I, if the roles were reversed, I would do the same thing for them, that they weren't, that I shouldn't feel guilty because parents want to be parents, you know? So, and, and I think through time you start learning these little lessons, even as a small child. So I would feel less guilty um, and share my burdens with them and not always internalize it. I also stayed really busy. So um, I was like into magic tricks. So I would go room to room and then put smiles on other kids' faces or I would answer phones because I was in the, I was, when I was in the house, was three months at a time, eight months at a time, eight weeks at a time. So I think by letting them know, hey, I'm busy. I'm not as sick as they're saying. I'm trying to lessen the burden on them, but I did feel um, I did feel guilty later. Also, though, the truth is, I felt guilty later that I didn't share some of my stuff earlier with them because I think they could have helped me process things that I didn't know how to process as a as a young seven, eight, nine year old kid. Yeah, that makes sense. You saw the show we did. I did with Shad Timeless, where yes. We- talked about how how hard it can be to ask someone for help i saw that and i love that show i watched it you know twice actually i remember actually let me tell you something you that chad won't remember well he might because it's on video when he presented at nsa i think he had a water bottle at the end of the stage and he was trying to grab it or something and the Everyone was like seeing him struggle. And I was the youth chair that year for the youth program. So we had front row seats. And mm-hmm. as he was like the third time he was trying to get the bottle, I went up to go help. And then I'm like, well, maybe it's, then I sat back down and I'm like, well, maybe it's part of the speech. Right, and sure right. enough, he says, everyone saw me struggle. Not one person came and asked for help. I'm like, Damn it. I should have got up and helped them. My gut told me to do it. So it is hard for me to ask for help. But I've learned a little bit later that some people are built to help other people. And sometimes, like I believe in blessings, right? Like, why would I block your blessing of doing something great for me? Because I'm saying no to you saying, hey, can I open the door for you? No. I can get my own door. Yes, I'm in a wheelchair and I'm I'm limping, and but I'll get my own door. Thank you. Now I'm able to say, oh yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. It takes a while to get there because we're so used to counting on ourselves to get things done. So receiving help is very difficult for me and let alone asking for it. 
So, right. but I did get to a point where sometimes you just got to ask, you know, it's mm -hmm. kind of like, you don't ask, you don't get, you've got to verbalize what you want because there are people out there that are in positions that potentially help you, but you have to have the courage to ask. Mm -hmm. And it's just one of those things that um, it's difficult for people like me who um, used to be embarrassed by it. I would be embarrassed because I would think I'm less than you or less than someone because I can't open the door by my own strength or, you know, mm -hmm. and all, all it was is someone was trying to be kind and nice, but I was making it all about me. Like, oh, I can do it, you know, and having to, to, to mature through that and is through experience and through life and to listening to amazing speakers and attending events. Um, I realized that maybe some people just want to do nice things. It's not just about you and your struggle. They're just kind people. Yeah. On the other side of the coin, the, the not kind people, when you were being bullied, um, what would you tell kids who are bullied now or parents of children who are bullied now? You got any advice having gone through that yourself? Yeah, so it's a topic I deal with almost every day with the kids that I serve, that they get bullied. I had one of the kids that I help, um, he was bullied so much. They literally told him to commit suicide because he was so um, different looking than everybody else. And um, it had to go to the police and the um, legislation. It, it was really bad. So one of the things um, I, I always say when it comes to bullying, um, tell you have to tell someone whether you tell a teacher tell a friend tell a parent you have to let someone know what's going on because mm -hmm. what happens in bullying situations and the advice i would give parents is that always have dialogue with your children of what's going on and and ask tough questions were you bullied today did someone harass you or anything like that because unless a teacher or friend a parent or someone's aware of, about it um they can't solve it or they can't interact to help um, the other thing is that, you know, when I speak to kids, I always remind them that other people's negative opinion of them is not their reality. That, um, and, this, and really, I tell them to stay away from those people as much as humanly possible. But sometimes right. in lunchrooms and stuff, those people have approached you, whether, you know, you want them there or not. So that's why I always say the minute you're bullied, you have to tell someone about it, because now you have eyeballs looking at the person doing their harassment where before there was no eyeballs because you didn't say anything about it. Right. And there were some times where you, they just didn't think you were going to live. Right. Yeah. And you're, they told your parents, you know, bring in the priest or whatever. True. Did you ever know that? Did you did did anyone ever tell that to you that you were going to die? Only my mother when I got a little bit older. So they would always when it became a very like during. Uh, let me back it up and say like when it was happening, like let's say it was Thursday or Friday, I got my blood work or a scan came in. And I was rushed to ER, the hospital, as a result of it. And then the doctors would take my parents in the room and they'd say, 
I don't, I don't think Manny's going to make it this weekend. I'm just going to let you know, I don't think he's going to make it this weekend. So my parents never came in the room and said, oh, this is your last weekend or anything like that. You know, they just acted super normal. But now as I, I was getting a little bit older, I started getting more rebellious, I guess. And I was like, hey, why are the doctors talking to you in there? This is my, this is, your guys are talking about me. You need to be in the room and I need to hear what's going on. And right. that's when, my mother said, well, sometimes we've had to have some tough conversations because we weren't sure you're going to make it in the weekend and over the weekend. And we just didn't know how to talk to you about it or how to break that news to you. So when I got a little bit older, I had a couple um, there was a couple times when I got serious infections where they, they did not think I would recover because of all the damage from radiation and chemo in my body, my immune system was so weak, they didn't think I'd make it. So they did have conversations with me, like uh, maybe this could be it. But when I was younger, younger, they kept me away from that. They just treated me as normal as they possibly could, but they wouldn't share that kind of news with me. So what, what do you think kept you alive? How did you serve? Because this happened, this was more than once or twice. This was oh, yeah. a, a, a number of times. And you're still here, still kicking. How did you do that? What, what do you attribute that to? Well, a couple things. One, uh, I am a Christian, right? So I do believe in God and, and um, that there is a purpose in my life. So I feel like I haven't checked out because my purpose is not done. So, um, and I'm still learning these lessons, apparently, through long suffering and these things that are happening to me and, and hopefully to teach others how to deal and cope with some of these things that happen. So I feel like part of it is my work here is not done. So having, I think, purpose in my life that my suffering meant something um, being able to encourage the people that I have along the way, that keeps me motivated to continue to fight and keep going. Like when I, if I got carted away right after this to a hospital and for whatever reason, you know, they're, oh, I don't think you're going to make it. My mindset is so, so positive that I'm like, oh, if it's, it's not my time, if it's my time, it's my time. But if it's not my time, let's get through this. What did I learn from this? How can I share this experience with someone who may be going through something similar so they don't give up, they continue to fight, they continue to have that mental toughness and that positive attitude that we need to continue to cope with the things that we do. Because if not, life becomes very miserable. If, you know, if there's no meaning behind my suffering, I gave it meaning, right? So if there's no meaning behind my suffering and it's just pain, 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 pain that I'm experiencing, um, it's too heavy of a burden for anyone to continue to want to bear that. So I gave it meaning. Um, I called it out and I just feel that my work is not done here. So whatever time I do have, I'm hoping that I could use this to, to help other people and whatever that looks like. So you come back again and again to your positive mindset, which obviously I don't, you don't have to convince me of that. I'm all in, right? right? Yes. But what do you do specifically? Books, podcasts, routines, exercise. What, how do you keep your mind set positive? Well, what, one thing I do is I wake up in gratitude every day. I'm, I'm very aware this morning I woke up and some people didn't. 
So I'm, I start off with just saying thank you to the universe. Thank you to God. Thank you for when I pray at dinner time. I always say thank you for the food I have. We're going to have leftovers. And I know some people are not going to have anything tonight. So I, I'm always grateful all day long. So that's super important. The other thing is I was really um, blessed at a very young age, like teenager, to, um, I was always kind of positive in the hospital. So people always say, wow, you're so positive. Have you ever heard of Zig Ziglar or Jim Rohn? And I'm like, no, who are those people? I'm like, oh, they talk about positive stuff. You should, so they handed me a book and I was like, oh my gosh, and Tony Robbins and, and all these amazing, you know, positive thinking people. So at a very young age, as a teenager, um, I started attending seminars. And, and events and reading books. And, and it's not, and, and I think Zig Ziglar said it best. It's not that a positive attitude will get you everything, but it gets you everything better than a negative attitude will. Yeah. So, you know, it gives you a shot. You know, if I'm going against a bas- an NBA player and I'm already defeated myself before I go in the court, I have no shot at all. But if I say, okay, Maybe I'm shorter and that's going to be to my advantage. I can get under his arm or under his legs or whatever. And staying positive and focused, it gives me the opportunity to maybe have a victory. So I, I do read a lot. I attend a lot of events because I always believe there's people. I mean, even I remember when I first met you, I think it was in New Braunfels in the 90s or early 2000s when you were doing something here at the NSA between Austin and San Antonio and you did a, an event here. I've, I attended that event. I attend all these little things, whether there's 10 people or 5,000 people. I got involved with NSA. I was a member for like 25 years. I just always surrounded myself with people who are, that are optimistic. There's realist, there's, I understand being realistic, but I also understand that um, having a positive attitude is everything. And so I developed it early since a very young age. And I've always just kind of maintained it because I do have my bad days where I want to throw the books and tapes away and set everything on fire. But I also have those days where I'm glad I have those books and tapes and listen to wisdom from other people's experiences that keep me focused and sharp and understand that, yes, the, the, the road to the top is going to have some bumps and roller coasters. Mm-hmm. Two or three books that are your must-have go-to books for that? So um, two or three books. So um, Robert Fulgram did Everything I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. I love that book. It talked about, you know, how to hold hands and, and do things together and, and share and um, be generous. Um, I'm going to tell you something, and it's not because I'm here with you, but you wrote the book, you know, uh, of being sick, dumb and broke, you know, uh, why you're sick, dumb and broke. I mean, that, that was a very powerful read. I mean, when you think about taking responsibility for yourself, um, and instead of being a victim, um, that's, that's a very empowering moment. So sometimes it's not even a book. It could be a sentence in a sermon or a song or a book. Um, then, you know, The Automatic Millionaire, I thought was a great book for someone who was born in poverty and had no idea what money can do. And um, I think that was, that's a good book to get your, your financial matters in order. 
And um, just about anything that Zig Ziglar and Jim Rohn put out, those those guys were just, you know, the greats in the beginning the, the, that really put you in a happy place to want to maximize your potential and do your best. Yeah. All right. And just I need to do a uh, public service announcement to everybody listening. He mentioned my book that the whole title is while you're dumb, sick, and broke, and how to get smart, healthy, and rich. Yes. So everybody who perked up and said, oh, I'm going to go read that book, do not buy that book. Because <laughs> I have a new book comes out January 12th, 2021. And it's called Radical Rebirth. And that book is the book I wanted to write when I wrote the dumb, sick, broke book, but I didn't have the skill to do it. I didn't have the writing skill and I didn't have the thought process, right? So that book was really good for people. I mean, to this day, I still get emails and DMs that, hey, I just read your book, dumb, sick, and broke. That was so amazing for me, you know, because they, it helps people recognize the limiting beliefs and the negative programming they got, right? Correct. Um, but I'm just able to do that so much more art, in a more articulate level today. So that's why don't get that old book. If you get guys the new get, one, get the new one, Radical Rebirth. Uh, you know, it's on my website already. It isn't, isn't listed with Amazon yet as we're recording this because they're doing the final cataloging, but it's on my website. Um, because that, I feel like that's the culmination of my works, my life's work now wow. in that book on the sure. topic you're talking about, just how we, we get programmed and then we get that negative belief. And then that negative belief produces a certain set of behaviors. Those behaviors produce results. The results make us believe the negative belief to begin with because it reinforces if you're just waiting for the next shoe to drop, waiting for the next bad thing to happen. And, you know, you, you, you have the self-esteem and the worthiness issues and you, you, you manifest that reality, which you expect. And so you have to reprogram yourself. So I just had to put that in as a, a yeah. And, and, but you know, at the time I have to tell you, I had so many self-limiting beliefs that the, the reason the book helped me and the reason I mention it, it's really, it's not just because I'm here, it's because I was programmed almost like uh, a coin. I, I, I was either super positive some things or super negative because I was in this cycle from everybody telling me things that um, they heard and they didn't research. And I just, because, oh, they're an adult, I believed it, you know? And, right. and so, and then you get caught up in this cycle and it was really a breakthrough for me because I'm like, I don't have to, I, I don't have to be caught up in this cycle. I can do something about it. Just because my family was in poverty doesn't mean I have to live in poverty. Like people say money doesn't buy you happiness. And and I know in one of your laws of prosperity, it, 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 um, it said money doesn't buy you happiness, right? But it also, um, golly, I, I just lost what I was going to say. Um, negativity or no doesn't buy you happiness either, right? So yeah. it's kind of like people who say things like that have never owned jet skis or bound to Maui or, you know, and I understand that money doesn't buy happiness, but also um, I understand that money is a tool 
And I was grown up believing that it was evil. And, you know, and I had to give it away and you could only make so much. And so I'm like, now I know that's not, it's not good or bad. It's just a tool that you can do some really cool things for. You know, that's what is, you know, builds hospitals and does amazing things for other people. So I was just so programmed so differently when I was young. Um, and that's why I'm so glad that I started self-development and, and taking responsibility for myself, even if I'm not in control of what happens, um, and I'm in control of my thoughts. Yeah. So that was super important and empowering for me. And tell me about the journey. How did you go from the kid who was dying of cancer to a professional speaker? How did that come about? Yeah, even though I seem to be mumbling here, um, what ended up happening was I was just so positive. And then I would go room to room and talk to these kids. It's going to be okay. And, and, you know, encourage their heart. And then one day as a teenager, I was in the hospital and one of the nurses says, hey, we're having a conference for parents who's whose kids have cancer. Would, you're such a bright light. Would you mind talking to the parents on, um, you know, how you stay positive? And, and I'm like, sure. So I went in and did, you know, this cancer conference and talked to parents and they got to see this seven-year-old kid with six months to live is now a teenager and um, mm -hmm. trying to get my real estate license and with these big goals and these big ideas. And then of course the parent in the audience said, hey, um, I have this little sales group um, that sells <laughs> you know, these products. Would you mind coming in and maybe talking to them? And for like a couple years, I would do these little events here and there and there. And then one day someone said, um, hey, I heard you speak the other day at this event. How much would you charge to come to my group? And I'm like, wow, I can get paid to speak. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> you know, and I'm going to tell you, it was the exact amount Chad said in his event. It was $500. Someone paid me $500 to show 500 up. Bucks. Wow. And I'm like, I was a teenager. I'm like, $500, man, that's like what we make all year mowing lawns and one little speech. So, of course, <laughs> it wasn't one little speech. You know, now we know there all the prep time and delays in airports and all the things, you know, speakers go through. So I just started to speak and decided, wow, that could really be my calling is speaking and, and sharing how I overcame adversity and how the developmental toughness and maybe share some of the things, the victories, the pain, as well as the glory of these experiences. So someone that can relate can be encouraged that um, not to give up and continue the good fight. Yeah, and so now you've got this ferrarikid.org, is that the website? Yes. Org? yes. So tell people what that's all about. So what happened was, um, and I, I started having problems walking. So I didn't want to necessarily fly no more. And, um, you know, a lot of our speaking engagements that you know more than me, being the, one of the top speakers in the world that, you know, it's a lot of wear and tear on your body. And I just could, I could barely walk. You go to Atlanta, that's its own city through that airport and I was having to get wheelchair service and all this. And I said, maybe I need to stop speaking and do something different. And, but I wasn't sure what that was going to look like. And then I had this flashback in my brain about when I had my, 
back to the previous conversation when I was going to have my leg amputated. Well, what happened that day is when I flew into Los Angeles and we exited the airport, my father and I, there was this red Ferrari. It was Magnum PI's Ferrari, but at that time, I didn't know it. I just saw the most beautiful car I've ever seen in my life. Uh So I asked the guy, I said, sir, is it okay if I take a picture next to your car? And he goes, my gosh, I wish I had the time to give you a ride. You're so happy. And I have that picture on my website today. And so I take a picture next to the car. And now you forward to eight years ago where I said, wow, what if I start an organization, the Ferrari kid, like the Karate kid, the Ferrari kid. And what if I put kids in cars that are coping with cancer? And I created this over the top, epic Oscar winning kind of day for them. We roll out the red carpet. We have paparazzi when they arrive, people asking for their autograph. We take girls on shopping sprees with bodyguards. So they look like they're celebrity walking around in the mall. And that's what I've been doing. So for the last eight years, I took all my suffering and all all this pain and said, how can I give it purpose and help those kids that were going through things like, like I lost so much of my childhood. You know, I don't have any pictures of my childhood, Randy. My mom threw all my pictures away because I was always attached to an IV pole where my leg was bigger than the other, or I was so tiny. So I don't have these positive memories. So I said, what if I create these epic moments where moms would keep the pictures, no matter what the kid had, a mask on or an IV pole. Mm -hmm. So now we create these celebrity for a day experiences like Formula One, front row concert tickets where they get to do a meet and greet with the celebrity. And it's almost like, think of Make-A-Wish is probably the biggest charity people think about. It's totally different from what they do, but it's my own version of a celebrity for a day. And um, we take care of about 400 kids a year that are not only coping with cancer, but any illness, whether it be autism or special needs. Basically, if a kid's sick, we do something about it. And then we use the Ferrari to take them to their chemotherapy appointments, radiation, at surgeries. So think of it as a free Uber. So, hey, my kid needs to go to surgery next week or get chemo. So we show up in a Ferrari and take them to their treatments. So it's, it's been, it's just a blast actually. Uh And so is that pretty much the Houston area or where So we do events in Houston and Dallas and Austin. I'm in San Antonio, so we're headquartered here, but we do many events. We do the same in San Antonio. We run full time and those other areas we have like host families where a family's gone through cancer. So we'll, they'll call up and say, Hey, we have 10 kids. Can we do something in Dallas or 12 kids in Houston. So we do these events in other cities for sure. And we're hoping to do them all over the country. Like I got a call the other day from a gentleman in Miami, actually, that wants to do, he says, I know a lot of people with exotic cars and can we do an event here? And I'm like, yes, we'll call the children's hospital. We'll get some kids and let's roll out the red carpet and give them an epic day. So you, um, you 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 have this idea for a kid's cancer world record. What, what's up with that? <laughs> All right. So one of the things I did is I, I need I know that I need help. So one of the things that a lot of charities are kind of struggling because of COVID and all the things going on this year. 
you know, people are wondering, they're wanting to keep their staff, let alone invest in charities and in, in, in that. So I'm like, what if, what if I pivot and do something that's epic? What if I break a world record? Now I'm going to share something that I've never talked to anybody about actually is what I'm about to say. Um, I want to break a world record in the most business cars, cards raised by a charity. So I want to get the Ferrari kids. It's going to be a group of kids, right? And I want them to do a little video that we can send out to business owners all over the world and their teams and their staff and make and break a world record and saying, send us a donation of any amount. So we don't care if it's a dollar or five dollars or whatever the amount is. The goal is to raise funds for the charity and send us your business card so we can break a world record. And then, you know, now we have a stack of hopefully hundreds of thousands of business cards of ki people who care about kids. Uh -huh. So one day maybe we can grow an endowment. So you, when legacy is very important to me, right? So one day when I do get called home, that the Ferrari kid continues, that we can take care of sick kids in every city across the, the, the globe, you know? And um, so that's the big goal is I want to set a world record for the most business cars received by a charity. And it's kind of my version of the ice bucket challenge that was so successful um, a few years ago, but no one gets hurt. And we raise right. a lot of money for these amazing kids. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, okay. So, and then you think the, the, the angle is collecting all these business cards is going to get the publicity, which will generate more people to give. Yes. And then we'll be in the Guinness Book of World Records, but not me, the kids. Because I want, I don't want this to come from Manny's trying to get the world record. I want these kids to own that title. That and then you know, then it'd be fun for someone to try to break it or for us to uh, top it. And yeah. yeah, but that's that's the thing. If we can break a world record by getting the most business cards in history for a kids charity, and the kids break this record, I think the kids can get some great PR and press. And you know, who knows how big it can actually go. I'm super scared to even put it out there, but that's that's the dream. That's it's the goal. It's out there now. It's out it there is now. For, it is for sure. There ain't no backing down. You better figure out what's the first step of that because yeah, this will be out there and people are going to want to know. <laughs> yeah, I think the first step is just uh, get the kids on video and say, help us break a world record and get that video out to as many people as I can. Yeah, I think so. So get that done. As soon as you do, I will add it to the show notes here for the audio and the video. Wow. So people will know that they could share that video and let me know, you know, I'll put it out on my channels, of course. You're so uh, good. So that's cool. What's, um, I don't know. Uh, what's, um, you know, final thoughts, what, what people listening, watching, what would you like them to know? I think uh, a great final thought is be open um, to having conversations with maybe um, people that are different than you. I think that's a good final thought. Had I been in the mindset that I only want to listen to certain speakers or talk to certain people and not explore that there's possibilities all around me. I think um, I would not be the person that I am today. So I think one final thought is to be open because help comes from different in directions and um, kindness comes in different forms. 
And I think it's important that, you know, we talk about this all the time, like it's nothing, but the truth is we are a product of who we hang out with. You know, if, if you, you let these gossiping and negative people in your world, it's easy for you to get that bandwagon and then be that way. So I kind of, a final thought is sometimes I keep my circle tight, you know, um, but that circle is people that I love and trust that I can talk about anything with. And, um, and they come from all different walks of life and, and be open to that. Not everybody that looks like you, you don't want a bunch of people that look like you in your circle. You want to be diverse and you want to be able to, to give and receive from everybody. Amen. Amen. What's the, uh, what's the best place for people to find you, reach you, connect with you? Thanks for asking, Randy. Um, the FerrariKid.org for sure. Like the Karate Kid, the FerrariKid.org. Best way to reach me. You can email me from there. You can call me from there. It's just the absolute best way to, to reach us. And in fact, we have a new website. I think it comes out tomorrow because um, we have a, you know, a new logo for the kids and everything. And so we're super excited about that. And whatever I can do to help anyone, especially any of the parents out there that may be dealing with a sick kid, or even if you're, you, you yourself as an adult are dealing with cancer or need to, some help in overcoming adversity, whatever I, resources I have or however I can help, I'm happy to do that. All right. Thank you for the work you do. Thank you for being who you are. Thanks for reaching out to me. And uh, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I, I was, thank you. I, I, I'm so grateful, Randy. Thank you so much. All right. For everybody watching and listening, thank you very much. Peace, love, and unicorns. <laughs> hey, thanks for listening to the Power Prosperity Podcast. Do me a favor and practice the circulation law of prosperity and tell people about Prosperity TV. So if you would, just put something up on your Tumblr, your Twitter, your Facebook, your YouTube. Uh, let people know what you think of the Power of Prosperity podcast. Even take a screenshot of your phone and maybe post that picture uh, so we can build the community here at the podcast. Thanks, guys.